Well, good evening. Appreciate you being here this evening. Take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. If you're using the outline found in your bulletin, I need to make a correction before we start. The last one is number six on your outline. My typist says first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and fourth. Unfortunately, I'm the typist, so I don't really have any... I don't have any reason or rhyme behind that. I just noticed it this evening when I was... Revelation chapter 15 is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, only eight verses. It is, in essence, a introduction to chapter 16, which is the beginning of the bold judgments. Charles Swindoll sets the scene this way for us. He says, you're sitting outside the office, fidgeting nervously as the secretary frequently glances over at you over her wireframe glasses. The plush chair beneath you was meant to be comfortable, but you might as well be strapped into an electric chair. Clock on the wall is ticking the time away. Your heart beats quicken as well. At any moment, the door will open and you will learn your fate. You see, behind the door, people in authority are discussing numerous accusations against you. Falling behind on deadlines, dereliction of duty, insubordination, incompetence, The reason that you're at the brink of panic is that everything that they say about you is true. You're guilty of every charge. Your months of irresponsibility have finally caught up with you, and now it's time to face the consequences. Nobody likes that feeling of genuine guilt that leads to breathless fear. The fear of being found out, or maybe even deeper than that, the fear of being held accountable. The book of Revelation gives us God's solution to the crisis of history. How he is going to bring about the long-promised world peace and blessing. After centuries of patiently waiting and putting up with Might is right arrogance, hate, greed, and bloodshed that has characterized our earth for so long. God says there is a time when he will call a halt to all this rotten business. This is the time when the great cry of the oppressed of all ages is finally answered. How long, O Lord, how long? We've reached a turning point of history when we come to this place in the book of Revelation, the seven bowls of God's wrath. Look with me, first of all, at the sign in heaven in verse 1. And then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. The chapter begins by showing us a sign in heaven. 
It says that John sees another sign in heaven, which he describes as great and marvelous, but literally is more ominous and terrible. Another means another of the same kind of signs that we've already seen. This was a different sign, but with the same purpose. As seen previously, the term sign refers to something that is used as a symbol to signify and teach an important truth. There are three great signs in heaven. First, there was the sun-clothed woman who represented Israel in chapter 12, verse 1. And there was the great red dragon who represented Satan in chapter 12, verse 3. And now, seven angels with seven last plagues. The seven last plagues is literally seven plagues, the last ones. The prophet Zephaniah says that this is the sign of the final act of judgment of God upon the earth. Zephaniah 3.8 says, Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up from plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. The last phrase, for in them the wrath of God is complete, is rather terrifying if you think about it, that upon these individuals, those who have affiliated themselves with the Antichrist and the false prophet, will now fall the full and unreserved expression of God's wrath. But before the wrath of God is poured out, we are again given a glimpse of the ones who have overcome the beast. We see the sea of glass in the first part of verse 2. He says, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. There is an old hymn that we sing. It says, I will sing the wondrous story of Christ who died for me, how he left his home in glory for the cross of Calvary. And then the chorus goes on to say, Yes, I will sing the wondrous story of Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory. What's the last phrase? Gathered by the crystal sea. Perhaps you remember singing those words to that hymn and thinking, Well, what is a crystal sea? Well, here's where we get that explanation. We should note that John uses a qualifying phrase. He says something like in his description of the sea of glass. John wants the reader to know that he didn't see a real sea, but a broad expanse, like a sea of white transparent glass or stone that has a glossy appearance and reflects an image. It is obvious that John does not see an ordinary sea of water Because the heavenly hosts are standing upon it. But why this picture? Well, some suggest specifically that this sea stands as a symbol of the word of God and of its many promises given to the believer. When we see these individuals standing on the sea of glass, it's suggestive that the believer is taking his stand on the word of God. The sea of glass is seen upholding those who stand firmly upon it. 
And this reflects the undeniable faithfulness of God as seen in his perfect plan of salvation in Christ as it is revealed through his word. The third thing that we see are the saints who are martyred. The second half of verse 2. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the, the number of his name, stand on the sea of harps of gold. In this scene, John describes a great host of martyrs, men and women who have given their lives due to the Antichrist and the beast of chapter 13. They are now seen in heaven, standing on the sea of glass or crystal, not beside it, as the NIV says, but on it. These martyrs are said to have the victory over the beast. And and I love this reminder. From the earthly perspective, judging by appearance, as these believers are killed by the Antichrist for their faith, it looks as if the adversary's assault is working. It looks like he's being victorious. It looks as, as though these men and women, as they leave the earth, are losers. But when in reality, when they arrive in heaven, they are victors. I like the way Pastor Red Stedman says, The Antichrist thinks he's getting rid of his enemies down here, but what he's really doing is running a shuttle service to heaven. This is a reminder to us that believers that things are not always as they appear to be. If we look back at verse 2, we see the the preposition ek in Greek used three times. It's translated over in your King James text. One for each of the areas of victory. The beast, his image, and his mark. Now, ek means out of or away from. And so they were delivered from the beast, they were delivered from his image, and they were delivered from his mark. This is to be contrasted with the church age believers in which tribulation saints came out victorious from the tribulation the church age saints are kept out of and never enter into. Fourth, we see the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Verse number three, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Drust and true are your way, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? And glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. There are two distinct songs here. There's first of all the Song of Moses, and if you want to see that, you just make the notation Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. It is a song of physical redemption. And then there's the Song of the Lamb, which is a song of spiritual redemption that is possible through our victory in Jesus. This singing is a blend of Old Testament praises. If you were to look, you would find that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 59, in chapter 32 and verse 4, again in Psalm 86 verse 9 and 98 verse 2, are repetitions of these same terms of praise. This is, these are Old Testament 
praises that are being again used. These songs are the first and last songs in the scripture, and both of them are descriptions of the deliverance of God's people by divine power based upon redemption through the blood. And I have there a place called the comparison of these songs, and I've given you about a quarter of an inch space to put all of this information that I'm going to give you. But if you want it, there, here's the comparison. The song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb was sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was of triumph over Egypt, and the song of the Lamb was triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses was when God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb was when God brought his people in. The song of Moses was of physical redemption. The song of the Lamb was of spiritual redemption. The song of Moses was the first song recorded in the Bible. The song of the Lamb was the last song recorded in the Bible. The song of Moses is the commemoration for a redeemed people. And the song of the Lamb is a commemoration for a raptured people. The characteristics of the Lamb song are the three V's. It's a song of the virtues of God. It's a song of the victory of God. And it's a song of the vengeance of God. He says, your judgments have been made manifest. Perhaps the most striking thing about the song of the Lamb is that there is not one single word about their own achievements. The only pronouns that are used in the song are your and you. It says, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. I think it's a reminder that when we stand in the presence of God, we will not feel moved to speak about our accomplishments. We won't feel moved to speak about anything that we have done. We will only be grateful. Grateful beyond words for what God has done for us. And fifth, the sanctuary that is opened in heaven. John now introduces another part of the vision with a rather attention-grabbing phrase. He says, I looked and behold. That expression always introduces something that's new and dramatic. As John looks on, the holy of holies in the heavenly tabernacle is open. The scene that is described from here to the end of the chapter will either give you hope or will terrify you based entirely on your relationship, whether you have a relationship with Jesus. First of all, he talks about the temple in verse 5. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Now, the phrase, I looked, occurs for the third time in this chapter. We see it in verse 1, we see it in verse 2, and we see it again in verse 5. 
And it translates the verb, which means to see and understand. John not only saw this with his eyes, but he spiritually grasped the meaning of what he saw. Now, have you ever stopped to realize that there is a temple in heaven? There is. And according to Revelation, it is the tabernacle of the testimony. Literally, the tabernacle, the one of witness. The earthly tabernacle was a picture and type, symbol, if you will, of a heavenly place, according to Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 2. When God gave Moses the direction to build the tabernacle first and later the temple that was to be built on earth, it was patterned after the temple in heaven. And just as there was a temple on earth, there was and still is a temple in heaven. The word translated temple, however, refers to a specific part of the temple. The part that we know as the holy of holies. The word is naos. It is the part in which the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The holy of holies stood for the very abode of God. And it tells us several things. It was where the ark was. The ark stood for the presence of God. It is here that the glory of God's presence called the Shekinah glory was manifested. It it hovered over the mercy seat of the ark from which God would communicate with Israel. By its contents, the ark stood for God's faithfulness. You may or may not recall what there are three things that the Ark of the Covenant contained. First of all, it contained the law, the tablets of stone, which represented the whole law that guided the people of Israel as a way of life and pointed them to the Messiah, the Ten Commandments. Secondly, there was Aaron's rod that budded, which portrayed the resurrection and God's choice of leaders. And there was the pot of manna, which portrayed the person of Christ and of God's daily provision. The ark also stood for God's holiness. You say, well, how did it stand for God's holiness? Through the tables of stone that were within. If you think about it for a moment, the Ark of the Covenant, if we want to visualize this as the Ark of the Covenant, on each end there was a cherub. And on the top of the Ark was called the mercy seat. Once each year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would pour blood over the mercy seat. So that when God symbolically looked out of the Ark of the Covenant, he looked through what? The blood. He saw his people through the blood of a sacrifice. The tables of stone declared the perfect holiness of God and demonstrated the sinfulness of man since no man is able to keep the law. The law declared a man sinner and cut off from God. The pouring of the blood by the high priest on the mercy seat 
showed that God's holiness could only be satisfied by the shedding of blood. This foreshadowed the person and work of Jesus on the cross as he did the whole ritual of the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. Verse number 6 gives us the judgment. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chest girded with golden bands. As John watched, he witnessed a great procession as seven mighty angels came out from the very presence of God. The seven angels are now moving away from the temple and away from the mercy seat. Those on earth will receive judgment. Judgment no longer tempered with mercy. Because they have defied God, they have followed the Antichrist, they have taken the mark of the beast, they have worshipped his image, and they have rejected Jesus, they will face the full fury of the wrath of God. Here the veil is pulled back, not to let man in, but rather to pour out God's justice. These angels are representatives of God and Christ and are being sent out from heaven to bring God's righteous judgment on the earth. As there are seven angels and seven golden bowls, it should be remembered that seven is the number of perfection. There are some versions that translate bowls as vials. Probably not a very good description for us because when it says that they were emptied, it says they were poured out with great abundance. A vial would give you the indication of something that would be turned over and you would have a small stream coming out. This is the full fury of God's wrath. These, the chest of these angels is girded with golden bands. It's an unfortunate use of the word girdles here because it gives us all the wrong image in our day and age when we think of girdles. Here is a band of gold that symbolized a symbol of sovereignty. And then number six, the seven golden bowls of God's wrath. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So the angels received their bowls of divine retribution from one of the four living creatures, which we have said could be the seraphim. There are two things that stand out about this outpouring of God's wrath. First, we notice that this is a severe judgment in that the angel is described as carrying a bowl full of the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul warned of this coming wrath when he wrote in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath 
a revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And secondly, we are told that God's overpowering glory is suddenly displayed in a cloud of smoke. And the result is that no one can enter the temple. The time for intercession is closed. No one, it says, was able to enter the temple. There will be no more mercy, no more delays, no more opportunities to repent until the seven plagues have passed. We're told that this smoke symbolizes the powerful glory of God. It is smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And the smoke fills the great temple so that no one can enter until the work of the angels is completed. It means it's too late to pray. It's a terrible time of judgment that the Old Testament prophets call the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus referred to it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 22 when he said, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. By saved, here it refers to survived. It is a brief, intense period which comes at the close of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Let me just conclude this evening by saying the Bible tells us that a man can keep hardening his heart to God's gracious invitation until he has had his last chance. He may indeed slip out into an eternity that a place of hopelessness, isolation, darkness, and torment. But God never sent anyone to this kind of eternity. Men go there because they refuse the alternative, turning to Jesus and accepting what he has done for their sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even in the terrible description of the outpouring of your wrath, there is the reassurance that anyone who will turn to you in repentance can be saved and all those who have turned to you in repentance will be saved. It's a great reassurance to us that no matter how terrible things may get, they're not beyond your control. They didn't catch you by surprise. You know exactly what is going on and you're still in control. Like so many saints of old, there are times we also have said, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper? How long, O Lord, will wickedness seem to be having the advantage on this earth? And we realize, Lord, there is coming a day when you'll bring judgment on this world. We don't relish in that judgment. In fact, I pray that it will be a reason that we'll be reminded to tell everyone that we come in contact with. There is a judgment coming. But the way that we escape that judgment is to, to accept what Jesus has already done for us on the cross of Calvary. 
Thank you so much, God, for what you've done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.